This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The deeper you go on the inside, hopefully the more timeless and the more relevant the messaging will be. You talk about hymns, that's what makes hymns so powerful. You know, they can apply to you in any time in your life. Think about Amazing Grace. Those songs weren't written for a specific moment, but the depth of them apply to all moments. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. This week, we're wrapping up Season 2 of Biscuits and Jam with wisdom and insights from some of our favorite guests, like Aaron and Ben Napier from HGTV's hometown, Fiona Prine, the philanthropist and widow of the legendary John Prine, and the soul-stirring, Oscar-winning composer John Batiste. We've had some terrific conversations about food, music, family, and so much more. And I especially want to thank all of you for listening. Now I want to share a highlight from one of my favorite episodes. I got to spend some time with the iconic singer-songwriter Amy Grant over Zoom this season, asking her about her deep connection to her faith and how it's guided her throughout her life and career. So Amy, your life as a spiritual person and as a Christian has always been a part of the Amy Grant that everyone knows. I'm wondering, did you start going to church and was it just always obvious to you that this is who I am or was it something that you kind of discovered a little bit later? Well, I I was born into a family that went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And my earliest memories of church going were a feeling of just incredible security. When I was in the third grade, we moved to a neighborhood that had a whole lot of kids. It was so much fun. None of them were like three-time-a-week churchgoers. And Sunday, of course, like the end of the weekend, some of the funnest games were happening on Sunday. And Like once in a blue moon, my mom would say, Honey, your dad's just too tired to go to church tonight. We're going to stay home. And I'd think, Yes! <laughs> There is a God. I get to stay home and play. (laughs) But honestly, it was in high school when I went to the church I grew up in. Everybody looked the same. It was a very homogenous community. Our lives were more similar than they were different. And when I was in high school, I started visiting a church because my older sisters had come home from going to school in Boston. And they went to a church downtown that was right on the edge of a lower-income housing. It was a mixed neighborhood. It was the up-and-coming and and the down-and-outers. And the youth group was that same mix. It was mixed, you know, socioeconomically, racially. And suddenly I... I've stepped out of what I had understood or just experienced sort of as a culture 
And I stepped into a circle that experienced all those things that I thought I knew very well differently. Like I remember being in the youth group when they bowed their heads to pray, it was as though Jesus had walked into the room. It was so immediate, so vulnerable. My family's really struggling with this. I don't know if my dad is going to make it. We're having a hard time paying the rent. You know, I went to an all-girls high school. My father's a doctor. I just had not ever known scarcity. My life was not well integrated into the larger community of Nashville. And in this new context with different people, there were homeless people that went to our church. In fact, I visited that church recently as recently as last Sunday, and they said, please greet everybody. And I leaned forward to the Hispanic man in front of me, and I said, hey, my name's Amy. What's your name? And he said, Joseph. And I said, where do you live? And he said, outside. And I said, well, just what can I, well, I said, I love camping, and but I've never actually lived outside. But I was outside last night when that storm was coming in, and the temperature dropped like 10 degrees. That must have felt really good, you know. It reminded me so much of high school. And really, that's when my faith took off, when I realized this is not just a cultural experience. I didn't think it was, but it was like, I, I don't, I, the world just got really big Wow, for me very, very quickly. And I really think it's in the context of all of us that we see the greatest work of reconciliation, that we see the greatest work of needs being met, that we see that. And all of that is spiritual work. And it's all very exciting. I mean, that's the frontier that never gets boring. And personally, I don't think you have to understand faith. I don't think you have to have the language of the church to have access to that. I think we are all so connected in so many ways. And that And a lot of our first interaction with that, we don't even know what we're stepping into. It's just like, I was at the right place at the right time. I had this need and somebody showed up. You don't have to have the secret handshake for that. You just go, oh my gosh, it's bigger than I thought. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And then inside of that, you know, is the language of faith and God and the Bible and all of that, you know, and, and some people want to take a deep dive. And some people live their whole life in a real childlike faith and never take a deep dive into all that. But I I just think we all have, everybody's got equal access. In this world of mixed opportunity, there is equal access to the Spirit. And that's good. Well, Amy, I just have one more question for you. What does it mean to you to be Southern? To be Southern means to have spent a lot of your childhood barefoot. To be Southern is a table with extra places set or ready. To be Southern is talking slower and telling stories. Southern to me is gentle. I'm sure there are a lot of other lists that could come from a lot of other places that might include less glowing words. <laughs> yeah, but for me, Southern, like immediately I'm going a, a thin sheen of perspiration on every forehead. Take off your coat. 
<laughs> yeah. What what's southern to you? Boy, that's a great question and I'm glad I haven't had to answer it. Yeah. But it's conversations like this one. Mhm. And being able to talk to someone and open yourself up and learn something about somebody else. That's good. Next up is John Batiste, an award-winning musician and composer who you can catch weeknights as the band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. During our conversation, like Amy, he also spoke openly about his faith, as well as his Louisiana upbringing. Well, let's talk about that. You grew up in uh, Kenner, Louisiana, which is right by New Orleans and, and kind of sandwiched between the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain, I believe. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about your hometown? Yes, indeed. You know, there's old Kenner and there's new Kenner. <laughs> and I grew up between both. When we say old Kenner, we mean the the part of Kenner that is by the railroad tracks, Bunch Village, as pretty much as rural as you could get in a city environment. And you have a few schools, a lot of great churches, strong Catholic tradition and beautiful, lovely little ravines and canals. Then you go to, to New Kenner and that's a little bit more of a suburb. And when I was a teenager, we moved there and I had a great time just playing basketball with my friends, a pretty suburban lifestyle that was broken up by going to New Orleans and playing with some of the greatest musicians of all time. So just kind of the balancing of those poles of existence was quite healthy for me. Well, it sure it sure was. And, and uh, it, clearly it had a, a big impact on you. Oh, for sure. I mean, having a, a place to go back to like Kenna just felt like such a, a, a warm hug after these experiences in New Orleans that I would have as a kid where I would just be so excited and have so many ideas about music that were forming. And, um, you know, I, I really I really do love my upbringing. And I'm very happy that I had this blessed fortune to be born there. So, John, people in Louisiana take a lot of pride in their food. And I'm wondering if there were places or dishes that Kenner was really known for. So if you came to my mother's house, her red beans and rice recipe is legendary. I mean, I tell you what, so many folks came to her house and Kenner for the red beans and rice on Monday nights. And I, I even showed that recipe to a few friends of mine. And one of my friends, Nathaniel Rateliff, he decided that he wanted to put it in a cookbook that he just put out. Oh, no <laughs> <But> kidding. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, Nathaniel's an incredible musician, singer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even Trombone Shorty, I remember when we were kids growing up, he would come over to the house for the red beans and rice recipe. I was told my mom that we should get at least some small restaurant or something out there in Kenner because that recipe is so legendary amongst those of us in the neighborhood. 
So can you paint a picture for me of like Monday night at the Batiste house uh, on red beans and rice <laughs> night? Oh, it's, it's, it's very, very low key. Probably have some, some music going or, or our favorite television show, you know, whatever era of time it is. Cause you're talking about the nineties, uh, early two thousands and um, really just thinking about what happened with the saints the night before. And, uh, and you know, either mourning that or still celebrating that and calling up folks, see if they want to come by for a last minute plate. You know, sometimes it's just the family. Other times people drop by a couple minutes before. There's always some left in the pot, though. It feels very much like a low key affair that anybody can be comfortable at, whether you're a king or whether you're just Regular old Joe from up the block. <laughs> well, I love the idea of you and Trombone Shorty sitting down to some red beans and rice at the same table. You know, it's funny. That was a tradition that uh, I, I, even when I moved to New York, in fact, when I joined the Colbert Show and, and, and Stephen and I became friends, the first thing we did was uh, I invited him to the house and, and he uh, he came over and had my mom's red beans and rice. So, I mean, I'm still <laughs> inviting folks over to the house, man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. Well, you you grew up in a very musical family, to say the least. What were the holidays like in the Batiste house? I've got to imagine there was a lot of music. Oh, my goodness. You know, I have the blessed fortune of being born into this musical dynasty of New Orleans music and my father being my first musical mentor. When I was growing up, he was my teacher. You know, he would tell me to listen to this or... He would tell me that this is something that I might be interested in reading or checking out. Same goes for my mother, who was very intellectual in her pursuit. To, although they weren't music, they would inform the music. <laughs> so she would tell me to, to to check out this or that. And eventually I would be at my grandmother's house. And this is my, my uh, grandmother, my father's side. And this is during the summers where we would go there. And my cousins, we formed a junior band. Travis and Jamal, and we would play video games half of the day, and the other half of the day we'd play the soundtrack and the and the score music from the video games in the music room at my grandmother's house. And this is the same music room that my dad, when he was that age, a kid and younger, would rehearse with his brothers and my uncles. So you, you can imagine just the that house on Elm Street in Bunch Village, Old Kenner. You know, just the 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 history of what happened in that band room and me growing up and, 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 and going through that as well. It was, it, it felt like a rite of passage. Yeah. You know, there's so much spirituality in your music and I'm just wondering, was the church a big part of your upbringing? Every Sunday, the church and my faith in general is behind all the music that I make. And I think that that is something that people feel and it's a good thing, no matter what you believe, to connect your creativity and connect your purpose to something bigger than yourself and connect it to something that's bigger than what is good for only you and yours. And that's, you know, my faith is instilled in me from an early age and staying close with God and staying close with him through my, my work is something that's always been a priority. Were there particular songs or hymns that really resonated with you or made a big impact? 
Oh, absolutely. Just a closer walk with thee. In fact, I'm thinking about back when I was in school, we used to sing, we have come this far by faith. And, uh, you know, we have come this far by faith. Da -na 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 -na. Leaning on the Lord. And he come, trusting in his holy word. Mm. He's never failed me yet. Do do ding. Oh, can't turn around. We've come this far by faith. That one was that's that one has stuck with mm. me for forever. Hmm. <laughs> what a beautiful thing. It seems like something you sing with a group, you know? Absolutely. The part oh can't turn around. That that proclamation of your faith sung in a group is one of the most faith-affirming things you can do. Well, John, your new album, We Are, drops tomorrow. And the title song, which came out last summer, is just magnificent. And there's this refrain in that song, um, we are, we are, we are, we are the golden ones. We are, we are, we are the chosen ones. Can you tell me about those lines and what that song meant when it came out? I wanted to speak to the realization that I had that whether we like what's going on in the world of politics, in the world of the government in general or media or our community. The people who have the most power are the citizens. It's us. And we're chosen to be on this earth in this situation at this time. And we have a choice to make as to whether we want to accept all that comes with that or if we don't want to accept it. And if we accept it, we didn't have to decide which way we want to go. Where do we want to take it all? Because at the end of the day, those things don't control us. We control those things. There's a lot that can be unpacked when we start to look at things from the perspective of our own personal power and the power of our communities versus looking for someone to come along to remedy things that we want to see changed. But, you know, you must have written that song before any of the protests uh, of last summer or before George Floyd. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Again, most of my music comes from the internal, not the external. So it comes from spiritual place and when it lines up with things that are happening in the world, I think that that speaks to the depth of spirituality in the music.
Well, it was just uncanny how much it seemed to connect with the times. The deeper you go on the inside, hopefully the more timeless and the more relevant the messaging will be. You talk about hymns, that's what makes hymns so powerful. You know, they can apply to you in any time in your life. Think about Amazing Grace. Those songs weren't written for a specific moment, but the depth of them apply to all moments. I'll be back with more of our best bites of Biscuits and Jam Season 2 after the break. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today we're revisiting some of our best moments of season two. I was lucky to speak to Fiona Whalen Prine earlier this year, widow of the legendary singer-songwriter John Prine, about the couple's connection to Muhlenberg County, Kentucky, and one of his most treasured and popular songs, Angel from Montgomery. Well, Fiona, you know, we started planning this podcast back in February of 2020. Mm -hmm. And the very first interview that we confirmed was with John. I remember. And I was actually going to head to Nashville and do it in person. And of course, we had to cancel because everyone was getting worried about this new virus. And None of us could have guessed what was going to happen, but I just want to say how sorry I am for your loss. Thank you. I appreciate that. Not to be morose, but it is, it touches me when people will take the opportunity to say that they're sorry that John's not here. It almost feels newer this year. I mean, the first year there was trauma and shock and so much pain. And I guess this year, I would say so far it's been a little more lonely. So Mm. I, I love any opportunity I can take to remember him and talk about him. So thank you for that, Sid. I appreciate it. Uh, well, <laughs> I can't tell you uh, what his music has meant to me and um, so many people. Um, and I'm sure the last 18 months have been incredibly difficult, but I'm wondering what it's meant to you and the family to see this tremendous outpouring of love and and gratitude for John. Yeah, it's um 
Jody and I were speaking about this recently. I think it's going to take me at least to have some time to step back and really look at everything that happened. It was a huge, huge, overwhelming at times reaction from friends and fans and family around the world. Well, I can't say it was unexpected because on that night and in those days after John passed, it was the biggest devastation in our lives for me and the boys. So on the one hand, it came as no surprise that the world also stopped and said, oh my God, we've lost John. But it felt justified. It felt right. Because indeed, it was a cry to the heavens. Oh my God, what's happened? But obviously, since that time, we have really started to a little bit understand just the depth of connection that he had to so many people in our world, within the music industry, within singer-songwriters, musicians from all walks of life, and then people. We've had letters from Australia, from New Zealand, from all over Europe, from Ireland, of course, where he was greatly loved, still is loved and so missed. So it's been a whole thing unto itself. I'm not even sure that I have language yet to describe it, but it has kept us going. It has kept us busy. It has kept us engaged with John's legacy, with all of the wonderful songs that he left for us to work with. It has left us a community and friendships beyond anything we could have imagined. So you're right. It's been overwhelming, but in the most beautiful way. Well, Fiona, I want to talk about his story a little bit and his background. John was born and raised in Illinois, but his parents were both from Kentucky. And some of his ashes were spread in the Green River in mm-hmm. Kentucky, um, which he, of course, immortalized in this song called Paradise. Mm-hmm. You know, Daddy, Won't You Take Me Back to Muhlenberg County? I mean, what a great song. Can you tell me a little bit about what the state of Kentucky meant to him and and that connection? Yes, Kentucky was very important to John. In fact, I think it's true to say that when John and I met, it was our rural beginnings, our rural backgrounds that really connected us in a pretty deep way from the get-go. He was proud to be from Kentucky stock, He has a big family that still live in those areas there. Family was important to John. And I think the correlation between my life and his life, when we met, we met in Ireland and I brought him to visit and see some of my relatives over those first couple of years when we knew each other. And honestly, the more humble and happy and chaotic some of those family homes were, the more content John was. And we talk about that now how going into a chaotic home with eight or 10 kids um, where my aunt and uncle would have a sponge cake at the ready, just like that, because he was visiting. It was those moments that really connected John to Ireland and connected John to the fact that we were, we were country people. He and I were both country people. Of course, it, it's well documented that he and his family visited Kentucky all the time when they were growing up in Chicago. It's true to say that his parents raised them as if they would shortly return to live there. John (laughs) often said that his father never purchased the house that they lived in. They lived in the same home for many, many, many years. He never purchased that home because he was convinced that one day he would take his family back to Kentucky. Um, and, And, you know, the funny thing is that my boys would, the younger ones especially, would tell you that 
growing up in Nashville with me and with John, sometimes it felt like being in Ireland, you know, the food that I would cook or the things that I would come out with, they would make fun of me, you know, some of my Irish sayings. And when I get mad, that Irish accent really gets locked in. So yeah, <laughs> Kentucky was important to John and getting to know his relatives was very important to me. And I loved all of his mother's sisters, the ones that he talks about in songs and, uh, and in interviews. All of those women were just phenomenal, including the ones that are left. A lot of them have now passed, including John's mother, of course. But they were mighty fine folk. They really were, all of them. Fiona, I want to ask you about the song Angel from Montgomery. Mm-hmm which is one of his most famous songs and, and which appeared on the, his self-titled album back in 1971. And it's also a song that meant a lot to me personally. It's one of the first songs I ever really learned how to play on the guitar. I remember the version with Bonnie Raitt that I must have listened to a thousand times over. What did that song mean to you and John? Well... I know that John was very grateful for that song. And he was very grateful that it became Body Rate's song. He would often say that the first time most people hear that song, they hear Bonnie Raitt's version of that song. I know he believed that nobody could or would ever sing it as well, that Bonnie made it her own. But as a female manifesto, I think we both recognized the importance of that song to women. And John was asked many, many times over the years, and this is the Angel from Montgomery. And, you know, you could go to some obvious angles and say, you know, maybe his mother or his grandmother. I know that John was a very observant, quiet, cheerful, but an observant, curious, listening child. He really paid attention. And I think he might have seen that in a lot of the women in his family during those days. I mean, he was born in the 40s. He grew up in the 50s um, and into the 60s when he started writing. Things were changing a lot for women. He understood that women did not always have a voice and that it, what, the voice that they did have was an important one and should and needed to be listened to. I am an old woman Named after my mother My old man is another Child that's grown old If dreams were lightning Thunder were desire This old house would have burnt down A long time ago Make me Well, it's just very remarkable to me that he wrote that song when he was in his early 20s. Yeah. And it's so believable and so real. And it's the voice of a woman who's middle-aged and mm -hmm. has seen a lot and has lived through a lot and that he could channel that at, at age 20, whatever, is I remarkable. Know. I know. And I think it is a testimony to the artist and him. You know, I think the best artists are observers. They really pay attention. 
And while John looked like the last person in the room who was paying attention to anything, that might he, he may even have just be, have drifted off to another room in his own mind, he was really absorbing everything around him. Yeah, yeah. The, the landscape, the sounds, the personalities. He was the best judge of character that I've ever met. And he got it within seconds. Finally today, this segment with my friends Ben and Aaron Napier, the couple behind the popular HGTV series Hometown, about what being Southern means to them, as well as an incredible story behind Aaron's grandma, Wida after she passed on in 2020. So I want to ask you about your grandmother, Aaron. I'd love for you to share a little bit about her and the discovery that you made when you were going through her thing. She passed away last year. Tell me what happened when you went over there. Well, she had a stroke, a massive stroke in 2008, which stole a lot of her memory and a lot of her vocabulary. But I learned as much as I could from her before 2008. I learned a handful of recipes because I thought I'd have more time. She was just so healthy and so spry and so self-sufficient. My grandfather passed away in 2001 and she had just been so tough, you know, like those women are so tough and she was just okay on her own. And I thought, you know, she'll be here forever and I'll learn everything when I'm done with college and I move back home. When she passed away in May last year and it was time to clean her house out, which was just devastating. We had kept a lot of things in storage and daddy was like, I think it's time for us to deal with these things. And so he and Ben and my brother and my cousin Jim were emptying out all the big furniture pieces. And they were taking this console out. It's just an ugly piece of furniture. It was not a great piece of furniture, so they were going to donate it. And they were carrying it out when a door flung open. Well, it, was, it weighed a ton. And we had to carry it down these steps. And we couldn't open it in storage. And we got it down the steps. And a glass fell out and it broke the glass and we're like oh shoot we need to see what's in here make sure there's nothing special and none of it was special you know we were like pulling out just cheap glasses and uh cookie jars and things and none of them had any significant stuff i'd never seen before but then in the it was the bottom shelf in the back there were three cookie jars like a little basket of strawberries a peach and there were these ceramic jars and I was like I remember those they were always in the kitchen and they were heavy and I thought did she leave the sugar and flour in them we need to empty that gross and so we opened the lid and it's all her recipes on tiny scraps of paper folded and shoved they were packed full with every recipe she'd ever cooked and it just felt like this great big gift like she was giving it to us it felt like more than it was more than recipes but then what do you do? Because everybody wants them. We all want to be able to access the recipes. So I went to school for graphic design. I thought, well, I can quickly make this book. Quickly is not the right word. It took many months to scan everything. She had duplicates. of like She would have like 15 coconut cake recipes. She was known for her coconut cake. But <sighs> And I don't know which one it is, so I included all the coconut cakes. But yeah, so... It's a treasure. I'm so glad we have them. What do you call the book? The Book of Weta. And about two years before she went into assisted living, I was spending an afternoon on the back porch with her. 
And I had the good sense to think, one day she won't live here. I want to remember what this was like. And so I took photos of her rooms exactly the way they were. Like her dining room. It, it was not a designer dining room or anything. There was nothing fancy or ornamental about it. I just wanted to take pictures of exactly the way they always looked. Her kitchen, her dining room, her living room. She had a wooden rotary telephone in the dining room that she still used. It was the main phone in the house. And I took a photo of that and of the back porch with all the rocking chairs. It was like eight rocking chairs on the back porch. And she had roses and four o'clocks that grew all the way around the screen porch. So you'd smell it. So I have pictures of all that. And those are the only photos her on that back porch, because that's where she spent the whole day. She would work in her garden and then sit on that back porch and wait for people to come by and visit. And uh, I'm so glad I took those pictures. What if I had never taken the pictures? I really urge anyone who's listening to this, if you are able to photograph your grandparents' home and them in their home, do it. They will be treasures for your family. Well, Aaron, you once said that hometown is more than a home renovation show. And it seems like there is a real sense of purpose behind a lot of what you're doing. And I think that seems to be what so many people respond to. What did you mean when you said that, when you said it's more than a home renovation show? I think that the home renovation aspect of it is really like... It's the motor that drives it. Like that's what that's what put it on TV. That's what put it on TV. That's why HGTV keeps it on. But, but there's more there. It's rarely the thing that people reach out to us about. Out of all the emails and questions we get, a third of them pertain to the renovation. Two thirds pertain to what it means for people to have hope and living in a small town that's struggling. Or they want to know about the people. They want to know about the people that they've seen on the show. They want to know that. Mike is okay after his hip surgery. He's our floor restoration expert. That um, Mallory's baby was born and everything's good. Like people get very invested in the people that they've met on this show, but also they're finding a lot of hope in it. Especially, so 2020, we got emails. Like I got emails that made me cry for the first time, but one in particular that stands out to me was from a woman who was in the hospital for maybe a, a mastectomy, but it was during COVID. And she said, I'm in the hospital and I'm completely alone. And Because of COVID, she couldn't have anyone She there. couldn't have any family with her. And we kept her company in the hospital because they played so many reruns of hometown. And people told us that we were a comfort, that it was more than home renovation. It was soothing and it was comforting in a time when they were very lonely and trapped in their houses or trapped in a hospital without any family. And that makes you feel like, gosh, we're doing something so much bigger than making pretty houses. Like, it's not the point at all anymore, really. Well, I think it's also very relatable to so many people. I mean, hometown has never been kind of lifestyles of the rich and famous. I nope. mean, the homes are modest. The budgets are small. But somehow y'all managed to infuse a lot of magic into these places. And you can see the response in the families that are affected. 
yeah, the home renovation aspect of our show is very attainable for all of America. We actually just left a house from filming that it's people who are moving to Laurel from New Jersey. And they had never owned a property. They've lived there for 25 years and thought that they never would be able to own property. Just thought that, you know, they would continue renting forever and ever. Amen. And, and I mean, how big is their lot? The house is 1,700 square feet. And I bet the lot is... 50 yards wide, at least. It's probably, yeah. yeah. 50 yards by 50 yards. And they spent $185,000 total to buy the house, renovate it, and they want to grow a garden. They've been surrounded by concrete 20 years. And they're like, I don't know why we lived this way. We couldn't afford it. And now... We want to have a garden and a dog and we want a big kitchen to cook food in. And they've never even been to the South before. So I hope that they're going to love it. I well, they visited Laurel. They, they visited <laughs> they Laurel. Been, yeah. They had been here a few times and just fell in love with the town and the people. And, yeah. uh, and like I said, I mean, it was very attainable. Their house is incredible. You guys have become real champions of small town America. What are some of the things that you hear from people about their hopes and dreams for their small towns? A lot of people say they wish that there was an Aaron and Ben where they live. And And the thing is... We didn't do this. We get to be the face of it. We are two of many, many people who've been working so hard to make Laurel feel alive. And I wish that people could see it. Two people don't do it. Two people definitely can't. Well, and like people, people come and they visit on the weekend and they see Laurel and they see our stores and they see my pickup truck and they take a picture with it. And they see the houses that we've done on the show and they think that that's it. But what they don't see are the people who, you know, organized the lighting project in downtown Laurel. They don't see the people who organize the Mississippi made event that's happening this weekend. They see us, you know, plastered on everything and they think, gosh, look at what all Aaron and Ben have done in this town. We just get to be the mascots of it. Yeah. And so that's the thing that we always try to convey to people when they say, you know, gosh, I wish we had an Aaron and Ben. You're probably the Aaron and Ben if you care about it. Or you might be the Josh or the Jim or the Randy or the Mallory. Yeah, everybody's valuable. So valuable. Well, y'all, I just have one more question, and I'll put it to each of you. What does it mean to you to be Southern? And Ben, I'll start with you. To be Southern is to be where my people are from. I lived in North Carolina for a while, and North Carolina is very much Southern. But it is not where my people were from. And I love North Carolina. It is one of my most favorite places to visit. It's one of the most beautiful states in our country. But Mississippi is where my family's from. This is our, this is our home. This is swimming in the creek. It's swimming in the it's your creek. Grandma's whoopie pies. It's Grandma's brownies. Um, we don't talk about whoopie on biscuits. Oh, okay. That's a little. That's for, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a little too racy. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's my granny's fried catfish, my grandmother's brownies, swimming in the creek, playing with my brothers. That's for me, it's that this is where my people are from. Yeah. Oh, being Southern. What does being Southern mean to me? 
I think it it means being great storytellers. That's yeah. Better. No, it's not. I think that's pretty no, good. No, it's not. We're we're all storytellers. Even the bad ones are pretty good ones. Ben's a long storyteller. Well, he likes to include every detail. I don't want anybody to get lost. It's true. My mama is this incredible writer, and her stories make the South. You can taste it. You know what I mean? And uh, I guess I inherited some of that. But the storytelling. You know, we have the best writers. Everybody knows it. That's the truth. It's true. Thanks for listening to some of the best bites from season two of Biscuits and Jam. For other interviews this season with folks like Reed Drummond, Loretta Lynn, Trisha Yearwood, and more, dig into our archives however you listen to your podcasts. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. And if you have ideas for future guests of Biscuits and Jam, please drop me a line at sid at southernliving.com. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Danielle Roth, Matt Sav, Erica Wong, and Rachel King at Pod People. Stay tuned for more episodes of Biscuits and Jam in 2022. Until then, we wish you a happy new year from everyone at Southern Living.